Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Mission View Church. My name is Matt Halp. I'm the lead pastor here. If this is your first time with us, we're so glad you came to worship this morning. If you're joining online for the first time, welcome. So glad to have you. We are in a sermon series in the book of Daniel. Well, actually, we have only uh, this week and next Sunday left in the book of Daniel, and it's been um, a powerful series so far. So um, I'm really excited to share with you from Daniel chapter 11 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up now to Daniel chapter 11. Today we're going to see a detailed outline of the history, not just of Israel, but of many kingdoms that rose and fell just like God said they would. And he said this through a vision that he gave to Daniel. So it's a foretelling of the future, powerful, detailed foretelling of the future. Now it's important for us to realize the accuracy and detail that God gives in this vision to Daniel. Every verse... Every verse we're about to read gives a perfectly accurate, detailed account of what was going to happen to Israel and the kingdoms that they were surrounded by. You ever look at our world and think to yourself, man, this world is messed up. I mean, all you have to do is open Facebook or Instagram or watch any type of newscast for about 30 seconds, and you're going to say to yourself, what is this world coming to? What are these people doing? What are these people thinking. So oftentimes, most of the time I should say, we look at the world around us and we think to ourselves, this is total and complete chaos. Our world is out of control. It's off the rails. Now, Daniel, as we read through his book, Daniel experienced the exact same thing. He was born into royalty, but early on in his early teenage years was taken from the palace and put into exile. And he served under Babylonian kings for most of his life. Late into his 90s, he was, he was in this terrible, terrible situation where he was in this culture that was so corrupt. He, he would look around and see all of these disgusting, horrible, immoral things going on around him. Daniel had to think of himself, think to himself, what is going on? God, what, what's, what's happening? How, how can you let this go on? How can you look down from heaven, be this all-powerful God, and, and allow this to go on? I mean, look at this mess. I mean, guys were getting put in fiery furnaces and fed to lions and all this terrible stuff that we've read about. But what we've seen is that God has proven himself faithful, God has proven himself all-powerful, and God has proven that he walks with us. He walks with us in the mess of our lives. It's been amazing to see God's faithfulness as we've read through and worked our way through each of these chapters here in Daniel. Well, chapter 11 is no different. Um, In fact, if you remember chapter 9, there's a whole lot of detailed prophecy in chapter 9 as well. Chapter 11 is pretty much the same way. As I was doing some studying, I looked at a lot of different commentaries and different theologians from you know, centuries, uh, throughout the centuries. And as I was reading those, Daniel chapter 11 is revered as one of the most accurate, detailed, foretelling prophecies in all of Scripture. In fact, there's a, there was an argument that happened with some more liberal theologians that came in and that don't believe in supernatural works of God. They, didn't, they don't believe that God can do whatever he wants to do. And as they read through chapter 11, they tried to take it out of Daniel because it was so detailed. 
It was so prophetic. It was so true. This foretelling of, of coming events that, that was told years and years before they ever happened. These liberal theologians just couldn't believe it. But we know, we know that God can do whatever he wants to do. That God is control of the past, the present, and the future. That nothing happens outside of his sovereign will. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 11. This chapter is broken down into two different sections. A prophecy that has come to pass as we look back. We can look back and see prophecies that have come to pass. But it's also filled with a prophecy that is yet to come to pass. So there's two sections. Prophecy that's come to pass and prophecy that's not come to pass yet. That first 36 verses are prophecy we're going to read. That detailed, accurate account that God knew and and in his providential wisdom and sovereignty ordained to happen. And then verses 37 through 45 are prophecy that have yet to come to pass. Now, I said earlier on as we jumped into this prophetic section here in Daniel, if I were to introduce you to a guy who would tell you, let's say 20 years ago, told me that Apple and Tesla were two stocks that I should buy, and I went ahead and bought those 20 years ago, and I was a billionaire, which I am not, sadly. Um, no, but if I told you I met this guy and every stock he told me about came to be the best stock you could possibly ever invest in, he was never wrong 100% of the time. Every stock he told me about was perfect. You would go to that guy and you would ask for some stock tips, wouldn't you? You would just go for it. And whatever he told you, you would just go invest in probably companies you'd never heard of before, but you would, you would go and you would invest in those things. We see the exact same thing here in Daniel. Over and over and over again, God tells us what's coming. He tells Daniel the future of Israel. He tells Daniel the future of kings and kingdoms that come and go and come and go and come and go and come and go. That's what we have here. And I'm really excited about the first part because we get to look at the detailed account but also excited about the second part because it's telling us what's to come. Who here wants to know what's in our future? Anybody? All right. Well, we're about to find out. So fasten your seatbelts, kids. Here we go. Uh, just so you can follow along here really well, I've got a nice fancy little chart. It's a little small print. So, I mean, if you're like me, you might want to get the bifocals out or whatever. I can actually zoom in here on my iPad which is kind of nice. But anyways, I put the chart in there so you can follow along. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of history here, a lot of history. Uh, for Daniel, it was prophecy. It was a foretelling. But for us, this is we can look back and see the accuracy of, of God's provision and his direction here. So I'll go. What I'm going to do, how we're going to work through this, I'm going to go verse by verse, and I'm going to tell you what every symbol stands for and who they were, what happened, and how accurate this is. I, I'm telling you, as I studied this, and look at this, it is, I am dumbfounded by the power of God. This is one of the most remarkable texts, not just biblical, but text period for all humankind. You just don't see this kind of thing outside of movies that we watch. And this is something that we've had in our hands for thousands of years. I mean, this is just amazing stuff. Let's pray before we jump into Daniel 11 here. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that you're in control. That there's, there's not one small detail in our lives that you don't see, that you don't understand. 
that you don't have a purpose for. God, we look at this world and we look at our lives and we see chaos and we see a mess. But God, you see your sovereignty, your will, and your way. Help us to come in line with those things today. Father, use me. Give me the words to share for your, your kingdom and your glory and for our good. We surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Detailed account, verse by verse. Daniel 11, verse 1. And as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This mighty king, just so you know, this mighty king is Alexander the Great, who conquered Asia Minor, Minor Syria, Egypt, and the land of the Medo-Persian Empire. So that's who's being talked about there. Verse 4, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. All right, I'm going to stop right there. So a few years after Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided among his four generals. This guy, there's four guys, Seleucus, Lysimachus, Cassander, and where's the fourth one here? Uh, Ptolemy. So these are the four guys that his kingdom gets divided up to. Now, it gets divided among these four generals because he didn't have an heir to the throne. He couldn't set up a dynasty. He didn't have an heir to his throne. So when Alexander dies, it gets dispensed just like God's word said it would. I mean, things like that don't happen. How do you not have an heir? That was unheard of. But God miraculously foretells that's how it's going to go down. I mean, it's, it's, that's just mind-boggling. It's just crazy how that goes down. So it's, it's these, this divided into four different ways. And this division was anticipated through, we saw earlier in Daniel, the four heads of the leopard in chapter 7, verse 6, and the four prominent horns on the goat in chapter 8, verse 8. And Alexander founded no dynasty of rulers since he had no heir. And his kingdom was divided this, these four ways. All right, let's pick it back up. Verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. We'll stop right there and see what's going on. The strong king of the south was Ptolemy. And a general, who, this was one of the generals that served under Alexander, he was given authority over Egypt. So that's kind of his region where he was reigning. And this is 323 B.C., and he was proclaimed king of Egypt in 304. So the commander referred to in verse 5 was actually Seleucus. He was also another one of those generals under Alexander. He was given authority to rule in Babylon in 321. But in 316, when Babylon came under attack by Antigonus, another general, Seleucus sought help from Ptolemy. And after Antigonus' defeat in 312 BC, Seleucus returned to Babylon really strong and, and had a great army. He ruled over Babylon, Media, Syria, and assumed the title of king in 305. Then Seleucus' rule was much more territory than Ptolemy's was, just like the Bible foretold. Now, I don't know if you're following me on this, but this is crazy. This, this foretelling of events is talking about how these four kings would be divided, 
Then he's telling you the very details of how they would war against each other and who was going to rise to the cream of the crop, who was going to be the king at certain times. This is insane. This is crazy. Verse 7, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. All right. Did I skip verse 6? Did I? Oh, let's jump back. You can't miss verse 6. This is really good. Verse 6 is crazy because it's the daughter of the king and it (laughs) gives really details. Sorry. Verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she will be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Okay, that is, I mean, if you're going to give a prophecy and talk about kings, I mean, if you were a faker, you're not going to throw in like their kids and what's going to go on with their daughters or whatever. But he does. God does. So here's what's happening. So Ptolemy dies in 285 BC, and Ptolemy II, Ptolemy's son, ruled in Egypt from 285 to 246. Meanwhile, Seleucus was murdered in 281, and his son, Antiochus, ruled in, uh, until 262. Then Seleucus, grandson to Antiochus II, ruled in Syria from 262 to 246, and Ptolemy II and Antiochus II were bitter enemies. But finally, after some years, they entered into an alliance in about 250. Now get this. The alliance was sealed by the marriage of Ptolemy II's daughter, Bernice. That's her name. It's actually Berenice. But she was married to Antiochus II. Just like the Bible says what happened. This is crazy. This marriage, however, didn't last for Laodice, whom Antiochus had divorced in order to marry Berenice, killed Berenice. That's how all of that went down. Just like God said it was going to happen, it happens. And you're just like, what in the world? So then we go into verse 7, which I had already read. Here's what happens. Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, uh, and he rules from 246 to 221, succeeded his father, set out to avenge the death of his sister, Berenice, and he was victorious over the, Syr- the Syrian army and the king of the north. He put Laodice to death and return to Egypt with a ton of the spoils. Now moving on, verse 9. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. All right, now here's what's happening there. After this humiliating defeat, Seleucus II, the king of the north, sought to invade Egypt, but was unsuccessful. After his death, now get this, by fall from a horse. How do you, you know, right? Like the king dies falling off a horse. He was succeeded by his son, Seleucus II. He rules from 227 to 223, who was killed by conspirators while on a military campaign in Asia Minor. Now Seleucus III's brother, Antiochus III, the Great, became the ruler in 223. He was only 18 years old. He ruled for 36 years until 187. 
Now, the two sons, this is where the sons come in, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, had sought to restore Syria's lost prestige by military conquest. The older son by invading Asia Minor and the younger son by attacking Egypt. Now, Egypt had been controlled, Egypt controlled all the territory north to the border of Syria, which included the land of Israel. Antiochus III succeeded in driving the Egyptians back to the southern border of Israel in his campaign. That was in 219 to 217. Can you see how detailed God is? I mean, ev- I mean every king that, that comes to power, every one of their kids, every war or battle that is fought has been foretold in specific, specific detail. There is no explanation for that kind of prophecy. There is no other explanation for that kind of detailed foretelling of future events other than this. The God of the Bible is the God of all gods, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is nothing we can do to explain his miraculous power and sovereignty. Nothing. He is God, capital G. But it doesn't end there. All 36 verses are foretelling detailed events of future events that Daniel was going to see. Oh, where was I? Are we in verse 11? Are we in verse 11? Oh, yeah, good. You're with me. Good. Good. I was just checking. Then the king of the south moved with rage. He shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supply. So the king of the south in this verse is Ptolemy IV. He ruled from 221 to 204. He was the one driven back by Antiochus III, the great. And Ptolemy IV came to meet Antiochus III at the southern border of Israel. Ptolemy IV was initially successful in delaying the invasion of Antiochus. Ptolemy slaughtered many thousands. But after a brief interruption, Antiochus returned with another army much larger and turned back the king of the south. I could go through 36 verses, verse by verse, and give you this detailed historical account how God planned it, how God willed it, and how God shows us his amazing power and authority. But I'm not going to do that because we would be here all day. It's the 4th of July, and I know you're ready to go grill some burgers and burn some dogs, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the rest of this, and I'm going to tell you why I think God put this in here like this and why God did it this way, all right? Verse 14, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come up and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give, them, he, they sh- he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand 
or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. This is crazy detailed account of history. It's just amazing. Then shall arise in his place one who shall shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest part of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, and he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And for the next 11 verses, it goes on and on and on and on. The power of God revealed to us right here on the pages of the Bible. Every leader, every political move, every war, every ever overthrown kingdom, every accidental death, every attempt at peace, every achievement of peace, every single change in leadership and kingdom is foretold years before it happens. God is in control of every little detail. God, big G, capital G, is in control. He is all-knowing and he has his hands on everything. No other God raises up kings and kingdoms and tears them down whenever he wills. No other God can tell us the future because our God is in control of the future. No other can change the hearts of men and women. Only the King of kings and Lord of lords can do that. Verses 1 through 35 in chapter 11 are an exclamation point on the omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence of the one true God who stands above all time, has created all things, sustains all things, works all things by his power and by his hand and by his joy, he works the future of all mankind. That's what these verses mean. God is God. He created you and me. He knows every thought that crosses our mind. He knows every deed that we've ever done, good and bad, There is no secrets from a creator God who knows all things and can do the future like this. This is God showing you and me right now. I am God. Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha. I am. The I am. No one. No one is like me. That's what God is saying. That's what God is saying. No one compares. No one compares. No power compares. He raises up presidents and he puts them down. He raises up kings and he puts them down because he's God. That's who he is. And we look at stuff like this and you know what we're supposed to do? Let our chin hit the floor. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fall to our face and sing songs like we sang before I came out here. There is no one, no one like our God. 
That's why this is in here. There's one, one fill-in in your notes today, and it's this. God is in control of every little detail. That's it. It's the only fill-in. It's the only note you have today. God is in control of every little detail. God wants to leave no doubt in our minds. No doubt. No doubt that every little thing that happens, he knows about, he allows, and he's going to use. Now, this is great news, right? Because like I was talking about earlier, we look at the world that we live in, we watch the news for 30 seconds, and we feel this chaos and this, this mess that humanity has made of this planet, right? It's just a hot mess. And we like, how is this? How is this good, God? How, I mean, are you awake up there? Do you see what's happening? This is awful stuff. I mean, you just, it's awful. God, are you there? Are you listening? Do you see? And then you read a chapter like this, and he's like, yes, I see. Think about it. Think about Daniel. He's, he's like a 12-year-old kid, gets taken out of the royal palace into captivity in Babylon. They try to brainwash him in this cultic, you know, school for three years. And then he serves under these psychotic kings who kill people at the whim and tear people limb from limb, just like we talked about. You talk about chaos and moral mess. They force people to worship them. These kings were like, you talk about issues. I mean, these guys had issues. They wanted everyone to bow at their feet, kiss their feet, and worship them, or you would be dead. Daniel understood chaos. He understood immoral mess. He understood what it meant to live in a corrupt culture. And he thrived because God, because of God, big G, he gets it. Now this is, this, for us, this can be great news. This can be really great news or, or really terrible news, depending on how you look at it. I mean, it's great news because the chaos and the peace, the pain and the joy, the gain and the loss we experience all fall under the will of a loving, gracious, and all-powerful God who loves you. Can I get an amen on that one? Okay, that, if you're new to church, the amen just means I agree. That's all that means. So we agree with that, that God loves you. You know, we have, we have great things that happen to us in our lives. We have amazing joys that, that come into our lives. And we have great suffering that comes into our life. And this all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God is in control of all of those things. And will use every single one of them for his glory and our good. So this can be really great news for us. It is great news because everything you've experienced in your life, God is going to use it. There is not one tear you have cried that is wasted in the kingdom of God. Let that sink in for just a second. I hope you heard what I just said. There is no tear you have cried that is wasted in the kingdom of God. Every little drop he's going to use for his glory and to grow us and sanctify us and change us for his glory and our good. Every little thing you've experienced. Look at Romans 8. I love this verse. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says this. 
And we know. I love how he starts that. Paul's got this confidence. It's not like, now just maybe. He doesn't start that way. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, not a few things, not some things, not kind of, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For those, now get this, for those whom he foreknew, he is also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And now get this, we talked about who God says you are. You're a child of God, but this is who God says you are. You are predestined. You are justified, and you are glorified. That's who God says you are. Why? Because you're an awesome person, and you're just good? No, that's not why he says that. He says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, because you are Jesus' inheritance. That's why. Not because you're good, not because you're awesome, and not because you pick goodness most of your life. It's because God in his graciousness, in his predestination, in his calling has chosen you. That's crazy. None of us deserve that kind of predestined. None of us deserve that kind of grace. But that's the God we serve. That's the God who who lives outside of time and looks down into it and reaches down into it and does whatever he wants. God, capital G, sovereign, capital S, like no other. So God being in control is great news, but we can experience that as great news or bad news. It's bad news because God doesn't always do things the way we would do them or the way we think he should do them. Can I get an amen on that one? Right, right, right. Yeah, right. We know this. If you're a human being living on planet earth, you know this, right? And this, I'm telling you, this, this, is what, this is where it went wrong in the beginning. Humanity, since the Garden of Eden, has thought that they knew better than God. It is like our default. It's like where we go. When I don't know what's happening, when I'm confused about my life, when I'm working through things, my default thing isn't, oh, God's good, though. You know, I just got a speeding ticket, but you know what? God's so good. <laughs> He's just teaching me to obey the speed limit. I'm just going to praise him right here, getting my ticket. Right? No, that's not where we go. What our default is, are you serious? 11 miles an hour over? Are you kidding me? I've got places to be. I love Jesus. I'm one of the good guys. Why is this happening to me? God, if you were up there, I would not have done it this way. I can learn this lesson without a speeding ticket. Thank you very much. Right? No, that's our default, and that's where it was in the garden. The enemy comes in, Satan comes in, the serpent comes in, and he says, did did God really say, I mean, you know, that you can't, like, you can't even touch it, you know, you're good. I mean, really? Really, what's happening is he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want to give you the knowledge of good and evil, because then you're going to be like him. Will you really die? I mean, can you prove it? Is that really true? Go ahead, eat the fruit. Eve, Adam, in that moment, could have been like, you know what? God's good. God's got this. But they weren't. They didn't. (laughs) They said, I know better. 
I'm going to eat the fruit. God said this, but I know better. I'm going to do it my way. That's where it all started. And we still do it today. We look at the horrific things that happen in our lives, and I'm not, I'm not making light of anything you're going through. I'm not making light of cancer. I'm not making light of any of these things. I'm not making light of any of it. It is horrible because of the fall and because of sin and because of all the stuff we have to deal with. I'm not making light of it. I'm just telling you that our default, when we suffer when we go through these trials and God allows these things in our lives. Our default is, why are you doing this? I don't deserve this. I'm awesome. I deserve better than this. I know better. I'm God. There's no God, capital G, but me. Now, we don't ever say that. We just live it, and we do it. And it's the same thing since the beginning of time. Man, if we could just, if we just wrap our minds around that just a little bit, of, of who God is, of what he's done, that's why, I think he, that's why he put this exclamation point of his sovereignty and power in Scripture. This is just one of many, by the way. We're in chapter 11, so we're getting to study that one. This is one of many of God saying, I am God. That's who he is. So it can be really good news, or we can really struggle with that news. What do we want to do? Where do we want to go? I'll tell you this. If you're going through something really, really hard right now, and you're in that valley, you're in that suffering, know this. God loves you. And Christianity, this journey that you're on with, with God, isn't, isn't a life absent of suffering. It's a life that includes suffering, but it's a life of God's presence in your suffering. And that's really, really good news. Because I don't know what you're going through, but God does. And God is acquainted with suffering because God put on flesh and he became a man and he walked this earth. And he lost people that were close to him. He went to weddings. He went to funerals. He celebrated joys. And he wept. I don't know what you're going through, but God does. And he wants you to know right now that he loves you and that he's walking with you through the valley. He's with you. God's ways are not our ways. And this is hard to hear if you're suffering. His ways are better than our ways. They're higher. They're better. In Isaiah 55, 8, 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is who God is. And I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with the suffering when I'm going through great loss and I'm going through trials and tribulation and I'm going through things I don't understand, man, I, I don't get that. I struggle with that. And a part of it is because we don't value eternity like God teaches us to value eternity. All right, you with me here? Stick with me on this. This is really, really important. I don't value eternity 
like God values eternity. The Bible says that God works all things together for good, called according to his purposes, right? That good, we may not see that good until we see Jesus face to face. Warning, hard pill to swallow, just delivered. We may not see that good until we see Christ face to face. My dad died when he was 69, was running our family business, was in great health, was a great help to me as a dad, as a pastor. He was a phenomenal man of God. Prayed for me, called me, critiqued all my sermons for me, really helped me, and he's gone. I don't have that anymore. I don't understand that. I'm frustrated by that. I'm angry because of that. But I know God is good. And you know what? He's in paradise. My dad's with Jesus. He's in the place that is most valuable. But we don't have, we don't always look at it that way. We, we look at this life as like the ultimate. Like cheesecake is the best thing ever. Right? I joke about it all the time. But I'm like, look at this life and I look at the joys that we have here and I'm like, oh, this is the best thing ever. No, it's not. Scripture, over and over again, what God's pointing us to is to value what he values. And what he values is the end goal. And the end goal is that you and I are glorified. We're an inheritance to the Son, that he has set aside a place for us in paradise, and he's bringing us there now. What do we value? When we're going through the mess, when we're going through the suffering, when we see great loss, Sure, I weep for the loss of my dad, but underneath that weeping is a joy uncontainable because he's where I want to be and he's where I will be soon. Amen? That's the God we serve. When, when you don't understand it, when you're going through the mess, we, there's two ways, two ways we can respond. We either run away from God or we run to God. This is the only way. There's no in between. There's no in between. I would encourage you, run to the one who is in control when you feel like everything's out of control. Run to the one who's in control when you feel that everything is out of control. All right, verses 1 through 35 there. God's in control of every single detail. He foretells the future, every single detail. Let's move on to the second section of this text, which is prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, right? That's where we are. Now, I'm saying all this because, and I really wanted to get that first point across as we went through that first section, because God's about to show us what the mess is going to be, right? Like we're talking antichrist, we're talking tribulation, we're talking like Moses, you know, and the stuff coming in. We're talking about terrible, crazy, biblical proportions, apocalyptic. I mean, we have all these apocalypse movies, zombie apocalypse. There's like real zombie apocalypse coming. I don't know if you know this or not, but like people are going to come out of their graves. All right. That's in the Bible. Okay. This is crazy. And God, so I think God's given us this first section. He's like, woo, just so you know, I'm in control and I am God. All-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. I am here. I'm the man. I got this. Now, here's the mess. <laughs> here's what you're about to see, and it's jacked up, okay? Verse 36, moving on here. 
And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Okay, here we go. And shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. Ooh, scary. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Okay, here's what this means. The duration of this king's rule has been determined by God. He will be successful as the world ruler. So as I'm going through this, this is stuff that God has given us to look look for, to to see coming, that that no man knows the day or hour, and I'm not going to predict Jesus coming or anything like that because no one can. No one knows the day or the hour. But God did show us some things, prophesy some things that should make us aware or see that the end is near. So that's just what to keep in mind. So he will be successful as the world ruler during the time of wrath, the three and one half years of the great tribulation. So you're going to see this antichrist rise up. He's going to be a world ruler and it's going to be horrible. He's going to speak against I am, Jehovah, Jesus, God. He will speak directly against him. It's not, he's not going to be incognito about it. It's not going to be like super sneaky. It's going to be blunt. Like he's going to speak against God. It's going to be like one of those atheists you watch on YouTube. He's just going to be offensive. It's just going to be offense after offense towards our God, the one true God. And this is going to be the first half of the seven years tribulation. But at the end of that period, the judgment determined by God will just lay him to waste. Okay? So pick it up, verse 37. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Okay, here's what's going on. The Antichrist will honor a God of fortresses. That is, he will promote military strength. And because of his political and religious power, he will be able to accumulate vast wealth. The God unknown to his fathers or his ancestors who will give him strength is probably Satan. It's probably who's being talked about there. Though this king will come to power offering peace, so this, his, his, his run to power is going to be an offering of peace. Though he's, he's coming to power offering peace through a covenant with Israel. That's in Daniel 9, verse 27. He will not hesitate to use military power to expand his dominion, and he will be helped by a foreign god. Those who submit to his authority will be put in a position of power. He will greatly honor them. And his ability to dispense favors or distribute land or power uh, at a price to these others who support him. And he's going to gain a great following. All right, now we're going to move on to the second half of the seven years, the tribulation. Here it is. In verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. So you have these two separate kings that are going to come against him and attack him here from the north and the south. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land 
and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all precious things in Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. All right, let me just interpret all that, what that means. Here we go. The king of the south will attack Israel. Since the king of the south, in chapter 11, verses 5 through 35, referred to a king of Egypt, there seems to be no reason to relate this king of the south to some other nation. In fact, Egypt is mentioned twice in verses 42 and 43, so Egypt, right? In this invasion, Egypt will not come alone, but will be joined by the Libyans and the Nubians. These nations referred to elsewhere, they called it Put and Cush, are those two nations. Now, these nations are probably uh, nations in Africa, so that's, that's what we're looking for. However, it's most likely that Put refers to Arab nations in the Sinai area and Cush two nations in the Persian Gulf region. So there's three options there, Africa, Persian Gulf region, or Arab nations. Those are things that we really need to be looking out for and see. So simultaneously with the invasion of Israel by the king of the south, Egypt, will be an invasion by the king of the north. The king of the south and the king of the north will fight against the Antichrist. Man, that's going to be crazy, right? We're gonna be, you don't have to worry about that. We're going to be in heaven at this time. So just, just so you know. But we'll probably see this stuff before we're taken to heaven. We're going to see some of this stuff getting set up, right? So the king of the south and the king of the north fight against the Antichrist. Israel will be occupied and many Jews will flee, seeking refuge among the Gentile nations. And if you want to study more on this, check out Revelation chapter 12 and 13. It's filled with this. When the Antichrist hears of this invasion, he will move his army from Europe into the Middle East, sweeping through many countries like a flood. He will move quickly into the land of Israel the beautiful land, as it's called. His first strike will be against Egypt, for Egypt and her Arab allies are the ones who will initiate the invasion on Israel. On this occasion, the king will not conquer the territory of Edom and Moab and Ammon, now included in the present kingdom of Jordan. But he will gain control over many countries. All right, that's what's going on. Verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents. I had a real hard time saying that earlier this week. Say that like five times really fast. Pitch his palatial tents. Pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end. As there's the good news, right? He's going to come to his end and nobody's going to help him. He's going to have no help. Okay, so then the Antichrist will hear, hear alarming reports from the east probably referring to an invasion by a massive army, probably around 200 million soldiers from the east, east of the Euphrates River. We see that in Revelation 9, 16, 2. And from the north, perhaps another attack by the king of the north. Enraged, the Antichrist will set out to destroy many of the invaders. Then he will occupy Israel and will pitch his tents, his royal tents, between the seas. That is the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. At the beautiful holy mountain, probably Jerusalem. Now, get this, posing as Christ, the Antichrist will set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, the same city from which Christ will rule the world during the millennium. The Antichrist will also pose as Christ by introducing a one-world government with himself as the ruler and a one-world religion in which he is worshipped as God. But God will destroy the kingdom of this king 
at the personal appearance of Jesus Christ to this earth. Wow. Right? So here we have this, these two sections of Scripture, right? In that, that first section, we have this detailed prophecies of four kingdoms coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, right? And God is right on, like we talked about. A detailed foretelling of coming events. Now we get to this section. This stuff hasn't come to pass yet, but it's going to. The track record is there. God's 100% true and right, and this is coming to pass. So here's what we need to remember, the fill and inner notes. God is in control of every little detail. This doesn't strike fear in the hearts of God's children. It brings excitement and hope. God is coming. These are the things that will come to pass, and we need to be ready. That's why God gives us prophecy today. Is he's saying, look, I'm God, I'm in control, I'm coming back, be ready. Be ready. We need to be ready for his coming. Let me just break all this down for us really quick, ready? Like this, this whole chapter 11, ready? It's going to get worse before it gets better. Daniel 11, that's like Daniel 9 through 12 in a sentence. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's just, that's how it's going to happen. But here's what we know. Jesus is coming again. God wins. And this is what God has ordained to happen in the end. So we don't sit here shaking in our boots, freaking out. We have nothing to freak out about. But we have to be ready. We have to be ready. Our Savior is coming. Jesus, who hung on the tree for your sins and mine, the one who had such great a love that he would suffer and die for us on the cross, our compassionate King, our gracious Creator, the one we now call brother is coming to bring us into glory with him. That's the good news. And anytime we talk about end times, anytime we look at these kinds of things, we need to be reminded that he's coming so that we prepare for his coming. So I want to give you five practical ways you can get ready for the end, <laughs> right? Here's five, five ways to be ready for the apocalypse. Any, um, what are they called, those end times uh, preppers? Any preppers in here? We should all raise our hands, actually. We're all preppers because Jesus said be prepared, right? So you don't have to like dig a trench or anything like that. You don't have to you don't have to do that, but, but we're going to be prepared for Christ's second coming. Here's five ways you can be ready for the end, okay? If you're taking notes today, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I just apologize for that right now. This is the easy part of taking notes. Here's five ways to be ready for the end. First one, get connected in the church and use your gifts. If you want to be ready for Christ's second coming, get connected in the church and use your gifts. I mean, if you were here during the first Corinthian series that we went through, that was over and over and over again, that we are to be in the church using our gifts for his kingdom, that God in that, that transaction of serving him and our brothers and sisters in Christ, that in that, that mess that that becomes, God is sanctifying us, changing us and growing us as we live out our Christian life together and we do life together. So get connected in the church and use your gifts for God's glory. Jump in today. Second, Share the gospel as often as possible. Share the gospel as often as possible. Disciple and be discipled. We have one job. When Jesus left, go back to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit, he said, you got one job. Make disciples. 
We're going to, when we get to heaven, and I always, I remind myself of this all the time, I'm going to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to be like, bro, you had one job. How'd you do? That's it. You got to talk to your neighbors. You got to talk to your family members. You got to talk to your coworkers that don't know Jesus. And you got to share Jesus. You got to be an example of God's love and you have to share God's love. Share the gospel as often as possible. Disciple and be discipled. Three, or C, if you're doing ABCs. C, study, meditate, memorize, and do God's word regularly. It's a big one. Study, meditate, memorize, and do God's word regularly. Now, it's not just study, meditate, or memorize, right? Not just study, meditate, memorize. It's do God's word. Think of, I, love, I love thinking about working God's word into our lives and, and applying it to our lives, working it through our lives as we do God's word. I'm all about studying. I study all the time. All the time I'm studying. I love memorizing. I love reading God's word. That's great. But if we don't do anything with it, it's a waste of time. If you don't put it to action in your life, it's a waste. You think about it this way. Like, you know, if I told, if I told my son to go clean his room and, and he goes downstairs and he's down there for like five hours and he comes back up to me and he says, hey, dad, I know you told me to clean my room. <clears throat> and so what I did is, is I got online and I, I went on Google and I looked up the, the 10 best ways to clean your room. And, and so I read through these 10 best ways and I took copious notes, Dad, on how to clean my room. In fact, I, I went back to the Greek and Hebrew and, and how they, they clean their rooms in Israel. And so I really, I'm telling you, Dad, I know how to clean my room. I mean, I've got it down to a science. And so I'm like, that's awesome. Let's go look at your room. But if he didn't clean his room, right? God's word, put it to work, do it. Don't just study, meditate, memorize on it. Do it, do what God calls. Okay, D, practice prayer and fasting. We talked about this one a little bit last week, so I'm not gonna jump into to, you know, the details on this one, but practice prayer and fasting. We want to be, God says we will be a house of prayer. We want to pray and fast and seek God. And E, enjoy Christian fellowship. Enjoy Christian fellowship. And I'm not just talking about going to a cookout today, which you should all do. Great. Have some burgers. Have some fun. Christian fellowship is this idea of coming together and, and really having strategic conversations around what God is doing in and through your lives. Sharing, ask the right questions as we do Christian fellowship. What's God doing in your life right now? What scripture is really popping out? What's really coming to life in your Christian walk right now? What's God doing? Christian fellowship. And the last one this is worship. Worship. Sing a new song, the Bible says. For all time, God's people have worshipped him with song, music and melody, rhythm and lyrics that glorify God and point us to his majesty, that open our eyes to, to just who he is. All right? Those are, those are things that we can do to be ready for the end because we want to be people that are ready. Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. What an amazing section of Scripture. You are God. There is no one like you. When we see the power of your hand, when we see 
the majesty and greatness in who you are, Father. God, I just pray that that reality would settle into our hearts and into our minds, that you would, you would reveal more and more of your greatness to us, that we would be a changed people because we, we have seen who you are. And Father, we pray that you would send your son, Jesus. We pray for that second coming. Come, Jesus. Come and rule and reign. We just look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song today.